My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Hi there. Welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. Here's a riddle. Can you guess who is considered by many to be the founder of modern safety practice? His work is associated with triangles and dominoes, and he's the first safety engineer to be inducted into the Safety and Health Hall of Fame International. He's a polarizing figure in safety discourse and theory, and if you guessed Herbert William Heinrich, you're right. But the next question is, have you ever read Heinrich's original work? Today's guest believes that most people haven't, and that that's a shame. Karsten Busch believes that it's worthwhile to reappraise Heinrich's work and legacy. He first discussed this in his thesis, entitled Heinrich's Local Rationality, Shouldn't New View Thinkers Ask Why Things Made Sense to Him? He followed this up with his book, Preventing Industrial Accidents, Reappraising H.W. Heinrich. Today, we'll discuss all things Heinrich and hear a nuanced view of his work that is both appreciative and skeptical of his ideas. Karsten Busch has studied mechanical engineering and safety and human factors. He has over 25 years of experience in HSEQ management in industries such as railway, oil and gas, and law enforcement. Karsten's work has taken him to the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and Norway. He's a regular conference speaker who's active in professional forums, including the Dutch Society for Safety Science. Karsten's also a tutor in the Lund University Human Factors and System Safety Program. His main research interests include the history of knowledge development and discourse in safety. Previous books include the well-received Safety Myth 101 and If You Can't Measure It, Maybe You Shouldn't. His other fields of expertise include progressive rock, single malt whiskey, and fantasy literature. Karsten joins us from Oslo. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you call yourself, or I've seen that you've called yourself, a safety mythologist. What do you mean by that? That uh, links to my uh, my first book, uh, which, by the way, wasn't my idea. It was the idea of a late friend of mine, Alan Quilly, a Canadian uh, safety professional. And we were discussing on LinkedIn and also uh, live because we, we met and we had regular calls over Skype. We discussed misunderstandings in safety and how people got some concepts wrong. And then he said, we, we just should b- write a book about these myths. And well, at some point I, I, I did that. I thought it would be uh, fun to call myself a mythologist instead of uh, the, the, well, the, the regular uh, boring titles of safety uh, professional or safety thinker or whatever. I tried to bust some myths, yes. So... There's a quote in your thesis, Heinrich's ideas have been around for over eight decades, and one may wonder about the reasons for their longevity. Why is it important to read, important to you, for people to read what he actually wrote? 
I would say, for one thing, there is uh, if you have appreciation for your field of work, you should know something about history, which doesn't mean that you have to read all the ancient texts, of course. But in the case of Heinrich, uh, there are so many people discussing his work and dismissing his work criticizing his work, where I think you cannot really appraise his work or criticize his work without knowing his actual work. And most people only know his work by hearsay. What really brought me on on this path of safety mythology uh, was actually a a really long-running discussion on LinkedIn, which was about one of Heinrich's uh, concepts. The infamous 88% of all accidents are caused by human failure or unsafe acts or what you want to call it. It's the longest running, it was the longest running uh, discussion that I know of. It had over 7,000 posts at the time. It's disappeared now, which is a shame because it was really fun to read. And I noticed that a lot of people uh, discussing there hadn't read his actual work and i wasn't going to fall into uh, the same trap so before i uh, took part in the discussion i took the books that had been waiting in my uh, cupboard for five or seven years i think a few years before the discussion i just had bought them on amazon because i thought well i have a lot of safety literature and i want that classic too put it in a cupboard and it, it looks cool but I took, I took it out and, and I read it and I thought, well, these people really haven't read this work. And then I started uh, partaking and, well, that, that set me off uh, on, on the course of critical thinking and safety, but uh, critical on, on a basis of knowing what's really uh, been said and appraising it from there and afterwards then learning also to appraise things uh, within uh, their context because this stuff has been written in the mid-20s, 30s, 40s and and the world was different then. The the language was different then. Uh, All all the early safety uh, thinkers, safety orders, they speak of men. All the time that they write about men, uh, because the men such and the safety men, this uh, that was the reality then. And then after World War II, you see some women entering uh, the, the the literature. It's interesting to to see that kind of development too. Yeah, context definitely changes over time. You referred to ethical implications of misunderstanding or misrepresenting his work. Can you talk a little bit a little bit about that? There are various reasons for having critique of someone's work. Uh, the, the first one can be substantial that you actually uh, uh, take uh, say the science and critique it based on on the state of scientific knowledge or on basis of uh, logical fallacies in a material or whatever and there is quite some space for uh, having substantial critique of heinrich 
Like, for example, this 88% uh, ratio, where it says that 88% of all accidents are caused by uh, human failure, 10% by technical failure, and 2%, uh, we tend to say, acts of God, uh, although he, he didn't really use that term a lot. But uh, you can critique that ratio, uh, for example, by saying uh, your data was biased, which it was because it was data from insurance company if you file a claim at the insurance company uh, you will probably uh, color the claim you won't send in a claim uh, saying it it definitely was me who was wrong here please pay because uh, insurance doesn't really work that way i'm afraid that would be a substantial uh, claim then you can critique uh, someone's work because you want to make a point. Like when uh, people like Decker, for example, uh, Sidney Decker uh, discusses uh, the the older traditional uh, takes on safety. He might paint a very black and white picture to uh, bring his message across how differently his view on safety is. So he he paints a bit uh, uh, blacker maybe than it should be to bring uh, across a point, which is a valid way of speaking. But you're already uh, treading into uh, quite uh, tricky areas there because people might take uh, your version as, okay, so that was uh, what Heinrich was all about. That was the totality. Yeah. So you you need to uh, be a bit nuanced uh, when when you bring that and say, I'm now uh, painting a very stark picture to to, uh, make the point clear. But there's more to it. And then uh, you have uh, some people who might uh, cherry pick someone's work, present that, and then say, well, that's all there is to make themselves uh, look uh, look better. Cherry pick or even uh, make a strawman, strawman uh, arguments uh, about uh, someone. One example from Heinrich's work is that there are a lot of people saying, well, these, these uh, uh, ratios of his famous uh, uh, triangle, uh, they don't work because uh, they, they are not uh, real because uh, in my organization, uh, they are totally different. Heinrich never made the claim was a universal law. If you look uh, uh, at Wikipedia, you might uh, find even uh, Heinrich's law there. The the page is sometimes on and sometimes off. It looks like Heinrich uh, said, well, this is a law of nature. Uh, You have always one serious accident and then 29 uh, minor and then 300 uh, near misses. He does uh, mention the numbers a lot, but it doesn't mean that it's a law of nature or something. For him, it was a tool to communicate. And uh, people, once they've heard the the ratio, they never forget the message. Or maybe they forget the message, but they don't forget the the ratio because it's it's easy to remember anger. And this is uh, where I say um, there are ethical implications. You can make yourself look better by uh, cherry-picking or misrepresenting someone's work. 
But what you do in the long run is probably uh, creating uh, new safety myths. Let's take a few minutes now. I'm going to ask about Heinrich, his influences, his timeline, the kind of context he was working with. Can you give us a, a fairly short rundown of, of what he wrote and, and what he was all about? He uh, worked for insurance company. Uh, he was uh, actually a, a blue-collar guy uh, who came into uh, after a couple of jobs, engineering, and he was uh, was a sailor for a while, working with machinery. And then by accident, he came into uh, insurance, travelers insurance company, and he would stay there from 1913 to his uh, pension in '56. And sometimes he was loaned out to the government. But uh, uh, he worked all his time in, in insurance. And that's one source of misunderstanding, I feel, for a lot of people. Because they hear, oh, he was an insurance guy. And then people will say, but insurance uh, isn't really about safety. Insurance is about making money. And that's what he uh, was supposed to do. And of course, he was to, supposed to make money for his company. But I think it's important that we understand the function of insurance uh, at that time. What I would like to do is a short uh, history lesson, which will take five to 10 minutes maybe, which I tend to do with my students uh, to um, explain to them uh, uh, the context in which Heinrich uh, grew up. And first we go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, which happened 1750 to 1850-ish. And the industrial Industrial Revolution brought a lot of uh, new risks or risks on a larger scale because the industry, people were packed into factories now. They got new machines. They got a new power to uh, power those machines, especially steam, which introduced new risks, uh, explosion risk that uh, wasn't there before. Uh, pressure vessels was uh, a main area of, of risk at the time, and actually uh, one of the first that Heinrich worked with when he joined uh, Travelers Insurance uh, in the early 1900s. And with these new risks and the factories, there came a lot of uh, bad working conditions. We all know the Charles Dickens novels, which paint a very, uh, well, stark picture of, of uh, what there was at the time. A lot of accidents and a lot of fatalities from these new risks. I would say uh, that was uh, when safety as a profession was born, because uh, before that, there was concern for safety. If you look in the Bible, the Old Testament even, there there is a rule, a safety rule in Deuteronomy, uh, saying uh, you, you should have a, a railing on your roof uh, to prevent people falling off. And, and uh, there are other uh, really ancient laws about safety. But safety as a profession didn't come before, uh, say, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, after the Industrial Revolution and all these uh, new risks. 
safety emerged, so to speak, uh, thanks of a social and political uh, uh, movements that started around that time because people uh, reacted on uh, all these accidents uh, on an unprecedented uh, scale uh, at the time. And people thought this is not okay. And you had also the, the socialist movement coming up and stepping uh, in for uh, workers' rights and uh, for Marx and Engels and all these people. One of the things that came out of these social and political reactions, that re uh, regulations, not so much in the United States, I think, at the time, but uh, United Kingdom, England, uh, they would have first safety law, I think, in 1830-ish. And it was a long, slow way because a law is one thing. Uh, enforcing the law is quite another thing. And people implementing uh, the regulations is yet another uh, uh, episode, especially because safety at the time was a cost driver. If you wanted to take an existing factory and make it safer by guarding machines, by changing the layout, uh, that cost money. And most employers weren't really interested in that. Another thing that came out of these social and political movements, people who reacted on, on the amount of accidents and fatalities, was uh, educational. There, there were safety exhibitions showing how machines could um, be made uh, safer. Uh, there, there were safety museums. I think the first was in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, uh, late 1890-ish. Uh, I think New York came quickly after and, and several around the world where people uh, try to educate uh, others in uh, you can do things safer. And there were some companies who actually thought, uh, well, it's our human humanitarian duty to take care of our workers. It's our duty. And, and besides, accidents harm efficiency. To take uh, an example, uh, Dupont, we all have heard about Dupont. Uh, at the time, they made mainly explosives. And I quickly found out it's not good for business if uh, your explosives go off uh, on the factory uh, floor. That's DuPont for anyone who, who didn't recognize the name. <laughs> yes. So th they were among the, the companies, I'd say, that were quite ahead uh, of well all the others. And then came a game changer. And that's called workers' compensation. And it changed uh, the, the game of safety quite significantly. Um, it's, it's probably a, a turning point uh, for safety because before workers' compensation laws came, and the first were in Germany, all the cost of accidents were for the employee. If you got hurt in an accident, you couldn't work, you stayed at home, uh, you wouldn't get paid because you didn't work. Uh, your employer would find someone else. And uh, if you didn't get well, uh, well, tough luck. So it, it didn't even pay to invest in safety because, uh, well, if someone uh, got hurt, you just got another guy and uh, on you go. Workers' compensations turned that uh, on its head because if someone got hurt, uh, the employer was expected to pay a victim. 
So suddenly uh, the cost of uh, accidents was turned to the employer, which was a huge incentive uh, to uh, work on safety. Because if you could avoid accidents, uh, prevent accidents, uh, you could reduce your costs. Germany was first, I said, Otto von Bismarck, the chancellor at the time, 1884. Uh, He didn't do this out of the goodness of his heart. He was just a very cunning politician. Uh, It was uh, one of the ways uh, to keep socialists uh, uh, down. So it was a really smart political move on his behalf, which was perfect for safety. A lot of uh, uh, European countries uh, followed. America, not so much. United States, the first uh, for them was 1911, following the Pittsburgh survey. Take note of that. Uh, If you want to read some exciting stuff from early safety, look up Pittsburgh survey on the internet, uh, the document uh, Safety and the Law by Crystal Eastman. It's open on the internet and it's a fantastic, document to read. Crystal Eastman, uh, one of probably the first women in safety, a very smart lady. She went on and did fantastic other stuff. But it's it's a really interesting document where she uh, smartly dismantles already in 1910 uh, the notion of most accidents happen uh, by way of carelessness. And she does it in a brilliant statistic way. Yeah, so it's it's fun, but that's just a side. But her work uh, contributed to uh, the adoption of uh, this uh, workers' compensation, also in America. And this is where insurance companies come in. Because employers uh, had to insure themselves against accidents. And the insurance companies, uh, uh, they were really, really active driving safety at the time. In, in Europe, it would be uh, partly the government, uh, inspectorates that were uh, created, that were active in uh, enforcing safety laws. In the United States, there were hardly any safety laws at all. OSHA wouldn't come until 1970, I think. So they were uh, 60 years in the future. So it was uh, insurance companies who drove early safety in, in the United States. And they would uh, appraise uh, organizations, companies, uh, visit the plants, um, make, uh, uh, give them advice uh, how to improve safety, and then, uh, well, uh, give them a premium. And if they improved safety and prevented accidents, companies could reduce their insurance costs. If you look into uh, the the early safety organizations, there were a few big firms. U.S. Steel, they had a safety department. Uh, DuPont had a safety department. Apart from that, uh, most organizations would uh, lean on insurance companies who had huge safety departments. Travelance Insurance, uh, Heinrich's uh, employer at the time, they had about uh, 400, 450 safety engineers, which they lent out to uh, well their clients to make inspections, to, to give advice on situations, to uh, investigate accidents. 
and uh, well try to improve safety that they also uh, published a lot of safety literature dedicated to uh, i know cinemas and agriculture and then other uh, sectors but i would uh, write a dedicated uh, safety literature for them and and publish it for free so that people could improve safety. So that, that's quite different how we see uh, see insurance. When when I think of insurance, I think well, those are these are these firms that take a lot of money from me. And when I bump my car into something, then I say, no, nah, we're not going to pay you anyway because uh, you you should have uh, paid attention or. Yeah, your car isn't worth that much anyway. So uh, yeah. that that's how we uh, see uh, insurance. It's it's not entirely how insurance was at the time. Insurance had a, a really important role in enforcing and stimulating safety, at least before World War II. So that that's one very important uh, part of uh, context we we need to take in us, and that that's also what what shaped Heinrich uh, because uh, most of the literature he used would come uh, from uh, insurance. Almost all American uh, safety orders uh, before say World War Two, they were employed by uh, insurance companies themselves. One, one main exception, uh, Louis Dublin, uh, who worked for Dupont and was their first vice president of safety, wrote a really nice uh, safety book, which influenced Heinrich a lot. And, and of course, one, one part of context that I haven't uh, uh, mentioned, but that's really important to mention, is that uh, safety became a profession in, say, the first two, three decades of the 20th century, but also management became a profession around that time. We've probably all heard of Frederick Taylor and scientific management. Taylor wrote his famous book in 1911, same year as the Pittsburgh uh, survey. He really had profound uh, impact on, well, e even on our lives today. Out of his work, th there was management before, but I would say much thanks to his work or much due to his work, his, uh, management became a profession in itself. And you can see safety as one aspect of management well, maybe an extension of uh, of management into one uh, specific uh, direction. Heinrich was very much aware of that. He picks up a lot of uh, the DuPont uh, philosophy that safety is a management responsibility. Du DuPont really drove that uh, into extreme, so to speak, that they said uh, managers have to live on the compound. Uh, because uh, then they take safety really seriously because they don't want their family blown up. Paraphrasing a bit, but uh, it was policy for them, uh, at least for a while. And, and Heinrich takes that uh, management responsibility, and you see it throughout all his work. And you also uh, see, if you read early, that he doesn't speak to safety people. 
his main audience is management and uh, especially top management. So you read, you need to read his work also through those glasses. And and that was when I when I studied his work quite thoroughly. That was uh, really a, a wow uh, uh, experience. That now I understand why he does some things uh, where I, as a safety professional, would say, well, why would you have so much focus on direct causes? It's because he wants to help managers uh, to to simplify uh, safety, which which was a new thing, a new area, an added uh, burden, so to speak, for them. But uh, Heinrich gives them uh, quite easy to understand tools, four point uh, bullet lists and easy to remember ratios. And he, he speaks to them. He doesn't speak to us safety professionals uh, 70 years down the road. We can learn from him, but we are not his audience, even though we think industrial accident prevention is a safety book. It is, but it's mostly a management book. That's a very interesting distinction there. When you're talking about NewView, like this is who you mentioned specifically in the in your thesis and the book, you count yourself among the sort of NewView people. But who do you mean by NewView? Like, are there specific authors or? It's not easy, and and it's it's quite easy to misrepresent the field and but as, as a rough uh, indication when i wrote my thesis i was thinking uh, about people that uh, would fit within uh, the uh, same movements of safety to safety differently uh, hop human organizational uh, performance so uh, names like holnagel decker Conklin, and, and some others. Those three names, uh, Holnagel, Decker, uh, Conklin, I looked most at in my, um, in my thesis work at the time because they had written most <laughs> of the material. There, there are many others uh, that do qualify, and, and well, it, it, it's, it's a fuzzy field. It's, it's as I said, it's... Looking back, I think it's, well, it's a bit problematic speaking about a new view, and I could have been clearer there, but... Well, one caveat that you do make, though, is that new view, which we'll use in this as an umbrella term in this interview anyway, folks, for, for sort of all this movement that's that's happening under multiple labels, you point out that it's about understanding organizational failure and not about understanding safety literature. So, and that's important because in the thesis, you're asking how do new view authors discuss Heinrich and do they use their own method of inquiry? So it's important to notice that or to, to note that their method of inquiry is to understand organizational failure. It's not really to evaluate safety literature. However, how did you find when you did the research for this that new view or modern authors how do they discuss heinrich it struck me that uh, many of them have a quiet negative tone when uh, they discuss uh, heinrich's uh, work 
And as I said, I, by coincidence, more or less, I was quite familiar with much of his work because I had read at least two versions uh, of his uh, book before uh, I, I embarked on this, uh, <laughs> this journey. And I uh, commented quite often uh, during class, uh, but uh, this isn't what Heinrich said. This isn't what Heinrich meant. Because if you read his work, then you see uh, that, that there is more to it. There's more nuance. And I started wondering, but uh, why is it that these people discuss things the way that they do? And then I, I, well, I, I started uh, uh, going deep into Heinrich's work. I got into contact with his employer. Uh, travelers, which uh, turned out uh, that I had much of his original work, papers he had written at the time, and even some original notes, which they provided. It's a dream scenario for any uh, researcher that, uh, oh, yeah, just, just send us a mail if you need more, and we go into the archives and see what we find. I had a chance to to get Heinrich to get to know Heinrich better than uh, you would if you just read his book, because uh, I could see and I'm in in a process of republishing those papers, so everybody can see if they're interested how ideas develop uh, from say twenty six to thirty one when his first book comes out and then develop further into. Um, uh, other versions of his ideas. That's one thing. I really dug in there, and then I started uh, to go systematically through, uh, say, for example, the work of Sidney Decker. Where does he mention Heinrich? In what terms does he mention? And what might be uh, the, the uh, idea behind this uh, uh, representing uh, stuff in certain ways? Then when I found out, okay, some, some of the uh, critique is actually substantial, goes into uh, the, well, the science of things. Some of the critique is maybe a bit more, uh, well, making ourselves look better and is used rhetorically. Some of the critique, I think, and that's not necessarily Decker, I would say, and, and the other two big others, but some of the people just dismiss stuff because it's old and start saying, yeah, but it, it's not science. No, it's not science because there wasn't a safety science at the time. The medical field wasn't a science before World War II, so... Uh, what, what, what do you expect uh, a new field of profession like safety? Put things in context and yeah, that, that did a lot of good anyway, even when it wasn't science. Now, one of the foundational questions or of New View, HOP, safety differently, all these things is asking yourself, why did it make sense for the worker to take this action or do this thing at that time in that context. And your discussion is that those in modern discourse, those kinds of authors don't look at Heinrich with the same question. They don't look and say, why did it make sense for Heinrich to come up with these ideas or to make these assertions at the time and in the context he was in? 
have I got that right? Is there anything I'm missing about that? Yes, yes, I, I uh, more or less take an uh, accident investigation question and, and I use it to, to study uh, literature, which isn't what it is designed for. But I think uh, uh, adopting that view and trying to step in an author's shoes, wherever difficult that is, 80 years down the road, not being in the same context and not knowing what what this figure was thinking, and we can't ask him, but at least trying to understand, well, why would it make sense for him, for example, to subtitle his book, A Scientific Approach, which is one of the things that that is critiqued. Just as uh, new view authors, including me, would reject easy answers to safety questions, like uh, why did this train crash into something and uh, just saying human error, that's too simple. Uh, We're not going, we we have to dig deeper. Criticizing Heinrich for, yeah, you you subtitle your book, Scientific Approach, but you don't do science, Uh, that's too easy. Ask yourself, uh, why would it make sense for him to, to use such a subtitle? We don't know for sure, of course, but there are several uh, possibilities that at least sound plausible. It would not be uh, to be expected, let me say, that Heinrich would write a scientific book at all. Because how would he? He was, and that's uh, where it comes in handy if you study his uh, background and his biography. Uh, he, he was a blue-collar guy. He had grease on his hands and then he just worked himself up and he, he studied in evenings and, and he got his uh, math exam and he got his engineer's exam while he was sailing. He didn't have any training in, uh, in academic matters. What did you find when you, when you ask that question? Why did it make sense? And some of the things we've been talking about all along, but for that, for example, why did it make sense? for him to discuss things the way he did. One reason, uh, just to continue on on the scientific bit, is how do you define science? And and from today's perspective, we would probably say, well, uh, you do science when you follow the scientific method, which wasn't common at the time for a lot of fields. Definitely not safety, but medicine, not that much either at the time. So that's not the definition that Heinrich would have used. He doesn't really define it a a lot, but uh, he speaks a lot of uh, working fact-based. So that's one one interpretation that he has of science. Science is something that is based on facts. And he says uh, we should address accident prevention also in a fact-based way not just uh, doing something uh, because it's perhaps the right thing to do. He said, first, when something has happened, go and try to find out why it happened. And then he he was really uh, systematizing and structuring the, the accident uh, analysis uh, process. White in his baby uh, shoes, so to say, or in its infancy, but it was a step ahead from uh, everything uh, that uh, was there at the time. 
So I think that that's one way of, of seeing a science. And, and he is quite, well, he, he explains that part quite uh, good, I think. Another suggestion why he uh, would use uh, a subtitle uh, scientific approach is uh, to, to sell his book. <laughs> I was going to say to be uh, to, taken to seriously, it to people. maybe. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not, it, it's uh, how, how people uh, sell toothpaste. They get an actor, good-looking actor, who, well, he might look like a doctor. You put him on a white coat, and then you say, this toothpaste is tested in a laboratory. Whatever. But the science sells. So I think that that's one idea. And then, of course, you have the hugely successful scientific uh, management which was really hot at the time uh, and make a connection there. Although you won't see Heinrich really as a Taylorist. I'm quite sure that he, he was thinking, well, we, we can benefit uh, from, from that uh, moniker. But, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't conflate the two. You wouldn't co- conflate Heinrich with Taylor then. Uh, no, he he's, he's not a, a real Taylorist. In some aspects, he's uh, w- when it comes to worker initiative and, and using good ideas of workers, he's much more uh, like, say, the new view than Taylor, who was really about, uh, well, you, you have planners, you have doers. There's some planning in Heinrich's work, but he uh, speaks much higher of a worker initiative and using their good ideas. They know how the work is done and they know about problems. I wouldn't say Heinrich was a Taylorist. Uh, He was surely influenced by Taylor. So I I wouldn't call myself a Taylorist. So you're not dismissing new view approaches. Yeah, I wanted to, again, read a quote from the the thesis. Many authors and safety professionals revert to an extreme position by either unquestioningly accepting and echoing Heinrich's ideas or a contemporary derivative of those ideas, or dismissing them entirely with rather little middle ground. So I wanted to ask you, what is the middle ground? Is there an ideal blend? <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the right way to ask it. But. Oh, uh, there, there, there probably is. I, I, I don't know where it is, the ideal blend. But um, I, I think uh, Eric Holnagel uh, says it quite nicely. Um, Eric Holnagel uh, brought the idea of safety too. But he says uh, you both need uh, the traditional safety, safety one, as he has labeled it and uh, safety to to be uh, really successful. So I think we shouldn't do away uh, all the old stuff from Heinrich and, and others because there's a lot uh, good in it. There are also some things that we probably should stop doing in a traditional uh, safety, but uh, uh, w- we can't do without it. To do, use a really stupid example, uh, I, I don't think that we wouldn't like to fly with a plane that wasn't built on safety one principles, where uh, stuff was thoroughly engineered and risk assessed and, and all that. But then um, using that plane, uh, we probably would like pilots and so on to be uh, as resilient as they can uh, can get and 
being hand, uh, able to handle all kinds of event eventualities and it's it's not the best of examples but yeah well no it's a, it's a microcosm in the plane right of of how there is a blend of both you were also a little bit conflicted in your study of heinrich and this is the last quote i'll hit you with but <laughs> you wrote he fascinates me and has done great stuff for the profession but he has also written some stuff that leaves me sad can you explain those a little bit Sometimes, and, and I don't have quotes, but partly it boils down uh, to language used at the time, I think. Sometimes he uh, writes in, in a way that I wouldn't uh, phrase things. Uh, quite uh, blaming and uh, morally uh, condemning uh, certain behavior. Which isn't uh, the, the the main theme of his uh, his work, but uh, you, that there are some uh, passages where you think, hmm, okay, I didn't like reading this, and it's it's most clear. And uh, again, in the context, I think in his uh, World War Two writing, he's written. Uh, it's not appearing in his books. But if you if you have the chance to read some of his World War II uh, papers and columns, there he more or less uh, equates having accident with an act of sabotage, which is as as blaming as it gets. But we have to understand it uh, within the context of uh, well the, the the time and and the priorities and he he wasn't alone because he quotes uh, more or less quotes uh, President Roosevelt there. I was going to say in the context of a war, I can almost see how someone would think that like the onus is on you not to have an accident because everything you do is a reflection of the war effort, right? Everything is about the war effort at that time. So it's it's most most clear there, but he he has a similar language also outside of war, and that's where I think ah, that that that's a shame because uh, well, if that's what is what uh, sticks in your mind afterwards, it it damages a lot of the good he has written. But but then uh, he he has also written uh, some uh, really fantastic stuff. Uh, where uh, in in one uh, paper, um, actually, uh, where he discusses uh, this this eighty eight ten two ratio, where he then uh, speaks of uh, people not as a root cause of problem, but as a root remedy. Which uh, when I read that, I was like, uh, wow that really fits into a new view because uh, people are the solution. Uh, <laughs> here is a guy who we all know has uh, said uh, most accidents are caused by people. And <laughs> what does he say? People are your main solution. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the state of discourse today. And I, I am talking about sort of on LinkedIn where people are on occasion, dismissive, uh, go back and forth. And sometimes I wonder when I see people with very different, with seemingly different points of view arguing, if you kind of look just a little bit under the surface, I often find that they're actually arguing for the same thing. Like they're, they're actually, they actually have overlapping beliefs that they're not seeing for whatever reason. 
Do you think that that happens today in the kind of discourse that you see? Quite a lot. I sometimes uh, think we're we like these uh, religious uh, sects uh, that, that quabble over, uh, uh, well, really uh, minimal uh, differences of how a piece of scripture should be interpreted. That's uh, also what you see in safety uh, quite a lot. Uh, well, you, you're in a new camp or you're in an old camp. And uh, if you're in the middle, you're a heretic for both camps. <laughs> but but in, in, in the end, uh, our goal is uh, to uh, protect people or to help people doing uh, jobs better. So I think if we concentrate on that, uh, we really want the same uh, by, by different means and Perhaps we don't even want a different means, but just a, a bit of tweakage. We have more in common than than we have different often. We have probably more in common, but that's, well, like Protestants and Catholics, they have a lot in common, but they conflict about some stuff and then, then start wars about it. Not Not anymore, luckily, but they used to. Well, that is a good place for us to move into some of the questions I ask all my guests at the end. If you were to be developing training for future safety professionals, what kind of, what's one sort of human interrelationship skill or soft skill they're sometimes called that you think would be extremely important for them to develop before they, or to prepare them for the work world? One thing that I've learned um, in my uh, 30 years now, when I started as a, as a safety professional, I thought I needed to have answers. And people still expect uh, me to have answers. But um, I think it's, it's much more important uh, to have uh, good questions because often people know uh, their answer. So I think uh, helping professionals to find the good questions first, uh, ask a lot of questions before they move towards the answer. That's probably one of the key, uh, key skills. If you could go back in time to the beginning of your safety career, what's one piece of advice that you might give yourself? Oh, dear. I, I probably would say uh, start reading uh, much earlier. But then, um, I don't know. I have had the privilege uh, to have uh, had quite some uh, safety practice before I moved into a more academic uh, uh, directions. And I think that's also beneficial to actually have been uh, around, not as a worker, but a lot on the, on the shop floor and talking to people and helping develop uh, solutions and, and using uh, solutions. Uh, that was quite useful, I think, to appreciate the theory uh, afterwards. But if I had to give my uh, younger self an advice, I would say start reading earlier uh, because I didn't start really studying before, I think, well, halfway my career, perhaps 10 years into my career. There's never any limit to what can be read. And on that note, you've mentioned specific, there's obviously, there's your thesis, there's your book, 
you mentioned the Pittsburgh survey. Are there any other uh, resources that you would that you that we haven't talked about that you might recommend to listeners to look up if they're curious about some of this? Oh, there there are some uh, fantastic books from the early uh, ages of uh, safety uh, online. If you go on uh, archive.org, uh, it's and then there's the Hetty Library. I don't know the, the URL from memory, but you find a lot there and also JSTOR. But you prepared me for the question and I've brought one book. Let's do it this way. Uh, Men and Machines by Stuart Chase, which is, uh, I think, the only book that made it through all the uh, uh, references in Heinrich's uh, book. And it's a fantastic uh, piece of work. It's written in 29, I think. And this guy, he was a journalist and economist and, and whatnot traveled the world and and this is a fantastic read even today uh, where he discusses uh, machines in, in society and i think he was four decades uh, ahead of his time and he's quite left-wing which is also quite interesting coming from the usa this is to be found online so i can really recommend uh, men and machine by Stuart chase if you want to read some old stuff and not heinrich go for this one. It's, it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, we, we'll see if we can find a link to that as well for the description. Where can our listeners find you on the web if they'd like to reach out? Uh, mindtorisk.com is my website. You can find uh, even a summary of uh, Man and Machine there. And I think there's even a link to the online version. And then there's a lot of other uh, literature. I try also to post my blogs there, but I'm seriously behind there. So forgive me for that. So that is all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for the fascinating discussion. Thank you for inviting me and indulging me. <laughs> I'm, I'm always interested in, in history and, and historic information. So... Listeners, can you do us a small favor? Go to your podcast or video viewing app and give us a star rating. It takes less than a minute and we really appreciate the feedback. Thank you to the Safety Labs by Slice team, making sense of safety since 2022. Bye for now. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>